0: Hey everyone, my name is Matt Boyd and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. Sojourn is a church that is committed to the gospel in the context of family living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. We hope that this sermon both inspires you and challenges you to live a life of intentionality where you seek to make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our church family, you can go online and check out our website at sojournpdx.org. Enjoy this sermon. everybody, it's good to see you. I'm excited that you're with us uh, here tonight. If you are with us last week, we started a new series in the book of Ephesians called United in Christ. And the reason that we uh, named it this is that if you look throughout the letter to the book uh, of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, that we see this common theme of Christ uniting all things to himself, both things in heaven and things on earth. And so we live in a time in history when the world around us seems to be divided. We live in the United States, but if you look around and just turn on the news tonight, it does not seem that our states are so united in this season right now. And when you add to the political landscape, you've got two extremes and they're really all around us, right? Just pick up a newspaper or turn on the news or scroll through social media and you're going to see these things. And our own city is one that's known for protesting and fighting of two polar opposites. seems like you can't go a day without reading an article about some type of two two very opposed groups they are going to have a protest. And sometimes these are planned in our city, and the rest of the nation kind of watches us, uh, and we're known for those things. And somehow the church is in the middle of all of this, and we're left to figure out what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Christ in the midst of an often hostile environment. We spent a big chunk of our time last week looking at how the believers in Ephesus were in a setting that's very similar to the ones where we find ourselves in tonight, which makes this letter that much more relevant to us today as we press into what was it that Paul was trying to communicate to these Christians, to these followers of Christ in Ephesus, and what is it that Paul wants to communicate to us in the city of Portland? Just to recap, in case you weren't here, the letter to the Ephesians was written like a survival guide to the church in a very hostile environment. Ephesus was one of the most impressive and intimidating cities in the ancient world. It was on the seaport, right at the intersection of Europe and Asia, which made it one of the trade hubs of the Roman Empire. Very influential city. It was a very cosmopolitan and multicultural city. It boasted one of the largest libraries in the world, and many of the world's prestigious scholars lived in Ephesus. It was religiously a, a smorgasbord. It housed 50 different temples, including the one that we discussed some last week, the temple to the goddess of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was known for its sexual immorality. There was was, This was literally an industry in Ephesus where most of these temples, which you, you think the temples would be known for something different, but most of these temples offered some kind of prostitution as part of the worship of ritual. So this is the type of place that this letter was written to. These are the Christians. This is the kind of city that they're living in. All this to say is that Ephesus was not a very Christian friendly place which is what makes this letter that timely and relevant for us because we live in an environment today, tonight, that's not a very Christian-friendly place either. For some of you, that might be your school. For some of you, that might be your work. For some of you, that might be even your family or or maybe the street where you live, your neighbors. And the set of verses we're going to look at tonight are actually one long, elegant sentence in the original Greek, which ends up being five sentences in English and 12 verses. Some, Some commentators even said this set of verses could be called a doxology or even a eulogy. I think last week we looked at two verses to introduce this. So you might be wondering, why are you why are you suddenly going this many verses tonight? And part of that is it, it is one long verse in the original language it was written in. And before we dive into these verses themselves, I want to point out that what we're about to see is Paul will show us that the triune God who initiated and accomplished cosmic reconciliation and redemption for the praise of His glorious name. Interestingly, what we don't see Paul do is we don't see Paul write them a letter with advice we don't see Paul say you know here's what I would do if I were you or here's the instruction I think you should go and do but instead he focuses his attention on the letter what God has done and the case of the verses we're looking at tonight how he did this before the foundation of the world and so if if you and I were Paul and, and this is why we're surprised Paul didn't do this we would have probably written a very different letter Think about when a friend reaches out to you in a crisis. Our our first inclination is, well, here's what I would do, or here's my advice. And Paul really doesn't do that at all. He just focuses attention on on what God has already done for us. This set of verses breaks down into three separate sections. The first section is we're going to see is uh, God choosing us, which is verses 3 through 6. The second section is Jesus redeeming us, which is verses 7 through 10. And the third section is the Holy Spirit securing us, verses 11 through 14, which is why we've, we've called this um, this particular sermon, Chosen, Adopted, and Secured. So here we go. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Ephesians 1. If you don't have a Bible, we do have a couple of blue Bibles there in the back table. Uh, Ephesians 1, we'll start in verse 3, and we'll hopefully get through verse 14. Starting in verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we'll start out, and we should really pay attention to this phrase, blessed in Christ, because we're going to see it used multiple times in this set of verses, and really all throughout this letter, which ends up being six uh, chapters. It's like Paul is bubbling with excitement, and he cannot wait to tell us. So to kind of frame it, like Paul was just very, very excited. You can imagine he can't wait to get down and, and, and write this letter. So think of the last time that you received some exciting news, you couldn't wait to share it with your friends and your family. Maybe this was a job offer, maybe this was a promotion, or maybe this is when you were engaged. So I remember how nervous I was before I got engaged with Andrea. I would flown all the way to Argentina from North Carolina. I had a diamond ring in my pocket the entire time. So I was nervous on the flight, just that I would lose that or that they would confiscate it for some reason security. We, I had the night all planned out. We went to the neighboring town where she grew up. We walked along the river; it's very romantic. And we, we got to this tree where we had previously had a couple other dates, and we had kissed by that tree. And you know, it kind of was like the movies almost. And I just remember uh, how nervous I was. But then when I asked her to marry me, and she said yes, I was just bubbling with excitement. And so as we uh, proceeded the rest of our date that night, I was telling all kinds of strangers. I was screaming both in English and Spanish that we are engaged. We are engaged, and of course were like, how much did this guy have to drink? You know, they're questioning what was going on. But I was just bubbling with excitement that I want to tell anyone and everyone that this is what's happening. This is what's going on. And so this is the kind of how Paul uh the excitement that he has whenever he's writing this letter it's like man i i want to i want to i'm bubbling with this excitement i've got to tell the ephesians that you are blessed in Christ and that hopefully we get to unpack that phrase uh tonight and then, and then as we continue in this series so why is paul so excited that would be that would be a logical question why is he why is he so excited i was excited cuz i had just gotten engaged but why is paul so excited look with me at verse 4 it says even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we see that he, God, chose us in him. What this means is that the Father chose us, Christians, in the Son, Christ, and he says this happened before the foundations of the world. So it's not like you woke up one day and you decided that, hey, you know what, I think I'm just going to start following Jesus. But you were actually chosen by him before you ever thought or thought of by your parents. So God's redeeming of believers from sin and death was something that God had planned all along in Christ and eternity past. This also means that we, his people, can take absolutely zero credit for our salvation. Sometimes you'll hear somebody's story and it's like, man, that really focused a lot on them and not a whole lot on Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. I always find it amusing when, when people mention... I really want to clean up my life, and and I'm on this journey. And I like to follow God, but I need to I need to stop doing these things. You know, I need to I maybe I need to stop smoking, or I need to stop drinking, or I need to I need to stop looking at these things or gambling, whatever it is. As if we can do enough and clean ourselves up enough to then God's going to go, no, no, I love you and you're accepted. It's like it doesn't actually work that way. Because we can only come to Christ on Christ's terms, which is coming to Christ on what he has done on our behalf, regardless of your background, regardless of those things that you choose to do in your life. And he even tells us that we were chosen what we were chosen for, that we might be holy and blameless before him. So he says, if you are in Christ, this isn't optional. The idea of being holy and blameless. Holy is is purity from sin, which we call, it's, we're going to use some big theological terms tonight, by the way, so I'll try to unpack these as much as I can, but the, the, really the idea of being blameless, uh, I mean holy, purity from sin is sanctification, we call that, which is an ongoing process. So, you know, once you're saved, you're, you still mess up, you still you still go back to your old way of life sometimes, but there's this ongoing process of being made into the image and likeness of, of Christ. And the idea of being blameless is freedom from guilt and shame of our sin, both our former sins and our future sins. And now that many of us get hungry. up on this idea of being chosen to the point that we don't hear anything else that's being said. So let me kind of hone in on this for a few minutes and just kind of stick with me because a lot of times we hear these these words and we kind of get hung up on that like an island and we stay there. And the reason we're going over these words is because they're right here in the text, and we decided we're doing this, this series in the book of Ephesians, and this happened to be the next set of verses. So let me hone in on this for the next, next few minutes, and, and hopefully we can then move on to the next set of verses, and you will be some kind of understanding. Tony Merida points out that the idea of God choosing a people to display His glory is not new. The Bible is a book of election. God chose to create the world for His glory. God chose Abraham to bring blessings to the nations. God chose the nation of Israel that they might be a light to the nations. And Jesus chose his 12 disciples to bear fruit and multiply. And God chose individuals for salvations, both here and in other places. And so he provides this image for us in the next set of verses to help us better understand what, what Paul means when he says that God chose us. So let's look in the next couple of verses. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Marita goes on to explain the nature of election. We must admit there is a great mystery in this doctrine of election. We should also affirm the other attributes cl- clearly affirmed in this text: God is loving, God is sovereign, God is gracious, God is wise. This passage shows us the necessity of personal belief in the gospel. In other words, some people would say, "Well, if if this idea is true, regardless of my understanding of it, does does that lessen the need for me to go out and tell people about Jesus?" No, it actually gives us the hope for evangelism because it's telling us that God has has chosen people for salvation. And so our part is to go out and share with people, hoping that we are sharing with those that he has set apart for himself. The best short explanation I've heard from this comes from A.A. Hodge. He says, does God know the day that you'll die? Yes. Has he appointed that day? Yes. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? To live. What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and die, then would that be the day that God had appointed for you to die? Quit asking stupid questions and just eat. Eating is the preordained way that God has appointed for living. So you may be asking, if I don't share Christ with them, does that mean that ultimately they weren't elected? Stop asking stupid questions and obey the Great Commission, which tells you to go and make disciples. The fourth thing, Marita points out, is our election is in Christ. And the fifth thing is the election should humble us. So if you didn't already know it before tonight, I've kind of opened the can here. The two doctrines that this passage really looks at, that touched on the the idea of election and predestination, they're both fairly controversial. Uh, In fact, they're very controversial. But we are a Bible-believing and a Bible-preaching church, so we don't want to avoid these. We don't want to jump over this set of verses and go into the next set of verses. We could have done that. Some churches do. But I believe that one reason these are oftentimes controversial is that people approach them from more of a philosophical place. You know, you start asking questions like, well, what happens to free will? Or maybe I have a family member who doesn't know Christ. Does that mean that God did not choose them? Or maybe you're saying, you know, I don't even know if I'm saved for sure. Does does God not care about me? Does God care for me? So the majority of these times when these doctrines come up, here's the problem, is that oftentimes it seems the people that I hear bring them up the most are the ones that are trying to defend them rather than marveling at the beauty of them. And let me explain that to you a little bit. We should all take a cue from the Apostle Paul in this passage as he is marveling at what is taking place here, as we all should, at the wonder and beauty that God would choose any of us sinners. Right? And so that, that's what Paul's really doing is he's, he's marveling at this idea that any of us would be given the opportunity to become and know Jesus. And so Paul's not, this passage is not him so much. You know, kind of hanging a theological stance or doctrine and, and and going down this this trail and saying this is what it's all about. It's really he's taking a step back and going, how amazing is it? How beautiful is it that one of the mysteries of scripture is that God would choose any sinner, because God could have done it a totally different way, but he chose to do it that way. And we all should understand at least the concept of being chosen when we we're deserving for something. Think about, I'm sure some of you in here have probably gotten the autograph of a famous person at some point. Uh, whether that was you met them randomly, like out on vacation somewhere, or or maybe it was after. I can remember as a kid, I'd go to NBA games, you know, and I'd be to the kid down front trying to get somebody's autograph. And, and so think about the idea that a famous person chose you out of the crowd to give them that signature that everyone else was seeking. They may have only chosen you and a handful of others, but they didn't give it to everyone that wanted it. So we kind of understand the idea of like, well, I wasn't necessarily more deserving that signature than the other five people around me. They just happened to choose me and give it to me. Or maybe you were chosen for a promotion at work that others were more qualified for. Maybe others had more more credentials and degrees and and the things that needed to, the qualifications to get that promotion, but you were chosen for, for a reason really unknown to you. Or in the case of my spouse, Andrea, she chose me as her husband, even though she was and is clearly out of my league. That's, that's pretty evident. I didn't deserve that, but I was given something above that and, and I was, I was chosen. So please don't mishear me saying that we want to completely ignore the philosophical questions because we don't. You may wonder, is the fact that I'm, that I'm, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian right now, would that result, is that a result of me not being chosen? The very fact that you're wrestling with an idea like that, a concept like that, is evidence of God's choice in your life. And you know what? We can't fully explain it. I can't fully explain it. That's why I'm I'm quoting a bunch of other people. And it doesn't mean that's not true, but think of it this way. What is greater, the gap between a four-year-old's understanding and ours or the gap between our understanding and God's? The answer should be obvious. It should be the understanding between our understanding and God's rather than than the four-year-old and ours. And so we approach this subject that we're delving into What the reality is that our minds can barely grasp. You know, think if this is supposed to be the God of the universe who created the world and then who created a way for us to be saved and we got in our own mess and sin, there there needs to be a part that we can't grasp. If we can just explain it all away, they'd be like, well, maybe I'm actually God. Like, no, you're not actually God, and I'm not actually God. There's only one God. So you have to keep that in mind. Our subject is God, the one and true and only God. Some get the wrong idea about election naturally. But it shouldn't cast doubt on whether or not you're welcome to come to Jesus, because all may come. That's the invitation. Would you see, see Jesus say, all may come to me? Russell Moore says it this way, God is not some metaphysical airport security screener waving through the secretly pre-approved and sending the rest into a holding tank for questioning. God isn't treating us like puppets made of meat, forcing us along by His um, his whim. Instead, the doctrine of election tells us that all of us who have come to, to know Christ are here on purpose. So really, it's it's affirming the whole reason that we exist, the whole reason that we're here. And so we see that God's election of Christians entails predestining them to something, in this case, adoption as sons. I'm going to read Romans eight twenty nine and 30. It says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so we see that God's decision to save someone and His will being poured out, His grace and goodness for those in Christ, for the believers. And we must remember that all of this is done according to His purpose and His will and His glory. And so perhaps surprising to some of us, we see that God's ultimate purpose is not redemption, but it's actually the praise of His name through redemption, So we we sometimes forget that it's it's ultimately just about God and praising God, and I cannot think of a more accurate picture of our relationship with God than adoption, and and it talks about adoption here. I have a friend who has four biological children, but him and his wife they also felt called to adopt. And so they have four other children who they adopted. And not just any children. They specifically have chosen children who have deformities and who have who've just been neglected most of their lives. You know, they I know they adopted one who's 15 years old and and the kid still lays in a a uh, a crib and still has to wear diapers. And so they're they're choosing the kids that no one else would really really want. And so as I was preparing this week uh, my friend Chris and his family just popped into my mind. I thought, man, what a beautiful picture of what he's talking about here in this letter. And so think about these kids that have been adopted. These kids have been chosen by my friend and now adopted into their family. And you know what? They are now just as mar- much a part of that family as his biological children. I, and I know Chris, well, and if he doesn't look at them and go like, well, you four are my adopted children. So you're going to sit on this side of our bus because with eight kids, you pretty much do have to drive a bus. And then you four are our biological children. So you get to sit on this side of the bus i know like, no, like they're, they're all interacting they all play together they, their inheritance which i imagine with eight children will not be a whole lot um they'll, they'll all get to split evenly between the eight of them and so those those four kids that they adopted are now fully part of their family they were chosen chris didn't have to choose those kids he could have chosen other kids without deformities without the issues but he said no this is who god is calling us to choose So just like my friend chose to adopt these children with all their health issues and deformities, God has chosen to adopt you and I with all of our issues of sin and now chooses to call us sons and daughters because we are in Christ. So similar to those kids, it has nothing to do with us. It wasn't like God was like, man, Matt's really killing it. He's doing a really good job, living a really good moral life. I think because of that, I'm going to say, you know what, you're going to be one of my sons. Like, No, it has nothing to do with that at all but it's because of what Christ has done and that we were chosen in Christ. Look with me at the next verse, starting in verse seven. It says, "In him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Paul is further explaining the nature of redemption here. Christians are free from slavery of sin and guilt that's caused by sin. This is effected by Christ's blood, his atoning sacrifice. The choosing comes with a cost which is the blood of Jesus on the cross that provides redemption for us. That is how we are chosen, through what Christ has done, through Christ living the life that none of us could live, dying a horrible death that we all deserved and shedding His blood and then raising again to new life. And the, f- the fact that Jesus would die for us is evidence of His grace being lavished upon us. Look at me at verse 9. It says, Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, And so we see the mystery of the things that were previously hidden were ultimately revealed in Christ. And I love the picture we're given here that Christ is uniting all things in himself, both things in heaven and things on earth, which is why we're calling this series United in Christ. One of the mysteries of Scripture and God's plan is it's all in his timing, which is often not our timing, So basically, when the time was ripe or or, or right, the fulfillment of God's plan will happen. God's effected cosmic reconciliation in Christ. Christ's work on the cross being the central axis for the history of creation, whether in heaven or on earth. God is redeeming all of His people, and God is silencing all the powers against Him. So, what does this mean for us today? This means that you and I are now given a mission to live out the purposes of God, seeking to unite all things and to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So God has called us and given us a role within his grand scheme and with his grand plan of how he's doing things. And so united in many ways is about us seeking to see it in Portland as it is in heaven. That's really what I want this this series to be about. As we see, I mean, Christ is uniting all these things to himself. How is it that we, we join Christ where he is working? And how is it that we help see things united in the city of Portland as it is in heaven? This is also why our leadership here is so desperate to see you interpret your life through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the good news, where you'll find true freedom and know that the resurrection that that of Jesus His life, his burial, regardless of circumstances or what life is throwing at you, that God is working all things together for his purposes. Some of us have had really good weeks and some of us had really bad weeks. Some of us had a really horrible year in 2018 and we're hopeful for a a better year in 2019. Some of us had amazing years in 2019. But regardless of what life throws at us, we can rest in the fact that Jesus is working and that God sits on his throne and that he is sovereign over all things. Look with me in the next couple of verses. It says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. We already discussed the idea of predestination a few moments ago, but what we read is that God had planned or predestined, really that's kind of what it is, it's a plan, those who believe from all eternity, while this is often a controversial, misunderstood, we must remember that God is sovereign. In other words, God is the supreme one. Right? God is God is overall thing. Because once again, He's He's God, and then all who come to Christ do so by His enabling grace. So this is one of those those challenging things for for most of us, myself included. You know, we we moved here to start a church in Portland, in one of the most lost cities, least religious cities, most atheistic cities in our country, and I've got to know a ton of people. But it's really hard for me to convince people they need to give their life to Jesus. So this is this is one of those things where I just have to trust God, that all who come to Christ do so by His enabling grace. It's not going to come by me grabbing them and shaking them as much as I want to sometime. Say, stop living this way. There's a better way. I've got the answer what you're seeking. But I have to trust that God is, is God and that God is sovereign and God knows what He is doing. But that doesn't discredit what God has called me to do and what God has called you to do. He's really called us all to go and make disciples. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, I have no questions that God chose me, because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen Him. And I'm sure He chose me before I was born, or else He would have never chosen me afterwards. And He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why He should have looked upon me with a special love. So I feel like I am, I am forced to accept this doctrine. In a sense this verse what it is saying is that God has predestined every event that happens but at the same time we as humans are given a responsibility for our decisions. You know so I'm not I'm not expecting that tonight we finish up and any questions you had about this passage at one time that now like the light bulb went off maybe it did. I did pray that the Holy Spirit would make things clear to all of us. But I'm not expecting that's going to be the case. If anything some of you have may have more questions now. But this is one of those things where you have to say I'm just going to have to I'm just going to have to trust God in this. It's one of those mysteries of scripture. There's lots of things that we we can't necessarily understand in scripture. There's always an element of faith. And that's one thing as I'm talking to people in our city, especially the ones who are, you know, I'm atheist and I don't believe anything. And as we discuss, and as we have friendships and, you know, I don't deny to them. I say, oh man, there's, there's, there's a huge element of faith in, in what I believe and what I practice. Absolutely. I always like to flip it on them, though, and say if you know if you're truly an atheist, you have faith as well because you have faith that there's nothing. So really, my argument is that we're all people of faith. It's just what's the object of your faith. And so far, Paul has shown us that God the Father is choosing us, God the Son is redeeming and adopting us, and now Paul is going to show us that God the Holy Spirit is securing us. So look with me at the last two verses, thirteen and fourteen. It says, "In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation." And believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Once one comes to Christ, we're not left on our own to figure it out. And that's something we should be very thankful for. It's, it's not like God says, okay, once you've, you've understood, now you've accepted Jesus. Now go figure out the rest. Figure out how you're supposed to live. Paul tells us that we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who protects us and preserves Christians until we reach an inheritance of authenticity and our acceptance by God. So the Holy Spirit gives us security, authenticity, genuineness, and identification of ownership. We don't even know what letters are anymore. But if you've ever watched an old movie where they, they send physical letters and they've got like the kings and there's the seal, like the wax seal, I I know my wife's watched some old movies where they have something like that but they definitely don't do wax seals anymore we just do stamps and they have to lick those nasty tasting envelopes but when you think about the wax seal that was to basically verify and to prove that this letter is indeed from who it says that it is because only the king only this individual would have a seal that was like this so it can it can't be falsified this is this is verification so that's what really what Paul's saying is that we are given the holy spirit as a seal that this is god So the Holy Spirit is that seal on our lives, saying that this is from God what you have accepted. And Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance. Think of the down payment that you made in your house, or maybe the deposit that you made on your lease if you're renting. That was your guarantee of paying to live in that house. I've heard it described like this, the Holy Spirit is our down payment of our share in the eternal kingdom of God until God has finished redeeming mankind to Himself. So this is the reminder of the guarantee of our inheritance. This is also touching on the idea of the the perseverance of the saints, which is a theological way to say once saved, always saved. This has been abused in many ways as a way to sin. as kind of a license. Like, well, if you're always saved, like once saved, always saved, I can just go live recklessly and do whatever I want because it doesn't really matter, Right. And if that's your attitude towards that, you actually miss the entire point, and you miss the entire point of the gospel, and you miss the entire point of the good news it being in your life to begin with. But if one is sealed with the Holy Spirit and truly in Christ, then in a really real way it doesn't matter what you do, you have a guarantee for the inheritance promised that you're given here. So how is this relevant for us today? Well, it's, it's, it's not hard, but life in our city is often a very challenging place. It's difficult to live here. You only have to walk a couple of blocks, go down to New Seasons, and you'll find people who aren't 100% sure where they're going to get their next meal from. We are surrounded by the effects of brokenness and sin all around us. And part of our roles as as ones that are chosen in Christ is to extend His mercy as part of His eternal plan. In other words, we are part of the plan to make everything right. We are not the ones that make everything right, but we're part of that plan. Even that should cause us to stop and awe and wonder. Say, God, why would you choose me to be part of that plan? But He does. And that's incredible that we get to be part of God uniting all things back to Himself. And the promise that we're given here in these last couple of verses is that the story of God is one continual pursuit of His creation, where He's uniting all things back to Himself. Think about your own story, regardless if you just started following Christ in the last week or if you've been following Him for the last 20 years or longer. Think about your story. And I guarantee you that there's a common theme of God pursuing you, both prior to salvation and after salvation if you're like me, I've been following the Lord for a, a pretty long time now. There's, there's, there's years of my walks of my, of, of my walk with God. I feel like I'm kind of getting off the path or I just don't sense God's spirit the same way there. But every time it's like God pursues me. God continues to pursue me. And so we see that. That's one long continual pursuit of us. And we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit in our heart and our life. So here's how we're going to wrap up. If you are in Christ, if you if you are a Christian, then you are chosen. And can you feel the confidence that gives you? Like that really should give you confidence. Not as a way to, to go and to your friends that are an atheist and beat them over the head and be like, ah, look, I'm chosen. That's not what it's about. But you should have this confidence to go, man, I am like God chose me. And this should allow you to get back up on those bad weeks, on those those weeks that you you slip back into sin or those those weeks that you're just your life's just not going the way that you want. To know that God has appointed you to be fruitful. Where you can say, God, by faith, because I believe in you, work in me. And then I'm going to say, yes, use me for your purposes. That's what we should be doing. To those of you who who say, maybe I'm not sure if I'm a Christian or or maybe my family, I know people who who are not, I want to say, you can be chosen. Jesus said, whosoever will may come. Choose Jesus. It's as simple as that. Choose Jesus. So as a response tonight, this is what we're going to do. It's the same way the church has responded for the last 2,000 years, by taking communion, or some call it the Lord's Supper. And so here's what we believe about communion. Communion is a great way to remember what Christ has done for his followers. 2,000 years ago, Jesus gathered with his closest friends and followers around a table, around a meal. But think of this as more than just a meal. This is pointing to the fact that Christ's body was broken for you and was broken for me, just as I will break the bread here in a few moments. Which I, I really like that picture, which is why I chose to leave the bread as, as one whole loaf. Because as I tear that apart, the picture of Christ's body literally and physically being broken for us. Christ pours out wine and says, this is the blood of my new covenant and my blood will be spilt so that yours might be preserved and that you can return back to God. And so every time we take this meal, we're reminded that God was treated as a sinner so that you and I can be treated as saints. And so we probably have at least two types of people, maybe three types of people in the room tonight. We first have followers of Jesus. And I want you to respond with desperate wonder, with that awe that we saw in this passage tonight. Even if you're going, I don't understand all these things, which is probably a good thing because you're not God. So I want you to respond with the desperate wonder, remembering what Christ has done for you. Others of you, if if you're still in kind of an exploratory phase, and you're, you know you're maybe tonight you've been convinced. You so see, I wasn't hundred percent sure when I walked in, but now now I'm convinced, and now there's some understanding there. So I want to invite you to participate in in this meal with us, with this communion with us, maybe for the very first time, as a response to faith, and then find one of our leaders at the end. Others, you might just be checking out and say, I don't really know what this is. I don't really know what I believe. I'm not really sure about any of it. And so my, my challenge for you is to pray and ask God to make the mysteries of himself real to you tonight, that you would have a clarity of understanding. So let me pray for us, and then I'll give a little bit more specific instructions on actually uh, taking communion. Thanks for listening to our sermons podcast. We are a church that's committed to the gospel and the context of family living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. If you'd like to learn more about what God is doing in our lives, reach out to us by emailing info at sojournpdx.org or check out our website. We look forward to hearing from you soon.